Habakkuk chapter 3. Tom insinuated that I'm teaching this word by word. <laughs> so today I'm covering three or four verses. Look at me. I hadn't thought about it until he said something. I was like, oh yeah, I guess that first one, chapter 3, is just the word oh. And then from there I preached the whole message. But not, not tonight, but not tonight, Tom. I promise. That's what happens when I, when I write my own sermons, but I've been letting my wife write. No, I'm just kidding. Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to cover verses 3 through 6 tonight. And uh, man, I, I'm getting excited as I read this chapter. Um, it's, it's a wonderful song he's singing. And because it starts off, you know, we've been talking about prayer a lot here and uh, having prayer meetings and praying specifically for requests and, you know, there's been a lot of talk of Christians in the past like Mueller and, and Ten Boom, these people who saw great acts of God through prayer. But when you read Habakkuk chapter 3, this whole song starts off with a prayer for revival and the rest of the song is how the Lord's bringing an answer to the prayer that he prayed. And it's a glorious, glorious chapter. So tonight the prophet continues his song after singing a song asking for revival, verses 1 through 2. So let's start with verses 3, and we'll read 3 through 6. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from, the, from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence. And burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Um, keep in mind as we go through this, this is all a song, right? Singing praise to God. Is a great way to praise God. Singing prayers to God is a great way to pray. Do you guys ever sing prayers to God? If you don't, try it sometime. That's what he's doing here. He's singing a prayer. That's what the prayer for revival was. He wasn't on his knees calling out for revival. He was singing a song. Psalm 51, David's prayer of repentance. It's a song. It's a song that Israel sang. Many of our hymns are indeed in the form of prayers. The question is, church, when we're singing, are we praying? Or are we, are we reciting words to a song? That's the question. Talk about vain repetitions, right? We get so up in arms about the, 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 the rosary and everything, but we do the same thing in church, don't we? Just sing. We're, we're singing... <laughs> We're singing, you know, hymns like we're singing along to Elvis Presley. That's what we're doing. Like I got a, a tape on and tape. Boy, I'm old. A CD. A, I'm, I'm streaming music. I'm getting closer. I still have cassette tapes. Don't judge me. They are eternal. They don't break. Um, but you're listening to music, you know, in the car. And you're just singing along to it. Is that how we're singing in church? That's not how we should be singing in church. A lot of our hymns are prayers. 
And when we're saying the words to the hymns, we should be praying in our hearts. Let me give you a couple examples. How about the hymn, Draw Me Nearer? I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice and have told thy love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to thee. Is that a prayer you're praying when you're singing that song? Or is it just words? Is there any difference between that and love me tender? Let's just be honest with ourselves. Is there a difference? Are we just repeating words? Or is our heart crying out, Lord, I long to be drawn in the, or to rise in the arms of faith and be closer. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding sign. When you sing that, is it a song? Just words? Or are you praying? You want to revolutionize your prayer life? Sing some of your prayers. People, you know, you try to get people to pray. Well, I can't pray very long. I can't think of anything to pray. Fine, grab a hymnal. Grab a hymnal. Find a prayer and sing it from your heart to Christ. It'll change your prayer life. Have a day by day. Help me then in every tribulation. So to trust your promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith, sweet consolation offered me within your holy word. Help me, Lord. When toil and trouble meeting, air to take is from a father's hand. One by one, the days, the moments fleeting till I reach the promised land. That's a prayer. But too often, if I'm not careful, I ask myself honestly, I'm just singing words. I'm just singing words. I enjoy the song. I enjoy the tune. If we're going to be a praying people, we need to be singing our prayers. Sunday morning, we're in here, we should be praying while we sing. Our mouths are singing words, but our hearts are uplifting Christ and pleading with him. Do you want Christ to draw you nearer? Then you can't just recite words. You have to ask him, plead with him to draw you nearer. Day by day, the first time, honestly, honestly, the first time I ever prayed a song was when my mom died. It was that verse. I had it on my phone. I was sitting in my room singing the song because the song brought me comfort. And I realized these words are what I want to say, but I can't, I can't vocalize them. So I sang, help me then in every tribulation, so to trust your promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith, sweet consolation, offered me within your holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, heir to take as from a father's hand, one by one, the days, the moments flee, from a father who loves me. That changed my whole perspective on everything going on in my life at the time when I prayed that song. You want revival? We sing a couple weeks ago, Pentecostal power. It's a prayer. Do you notice that? Lord, as of old at Pentecost, thou didst thy power display with cleansing, purifying flame descend on us today. 
for mighty works for thee prepare and strengthen every heart. Come take possession of thine own and nevermore depart. All self-consume, all sin destroy with earnest zeal and due. Each waiting heart to work for thee, O Lord, our faith renew. Speak, Lord, before thy throne we wait, thy promise we believe, and will not let thee go until the blessing we receive. That's a prayer. I've been singing this one lately. It's not in, in our hymnals. I don't have the music for it. I'd love to sing it in church. It's called Send a Great Revival of My Soul. Have you ever heard that song? Don't raise your hand. I'll make you come up here and sing it. But It's a prayer. I've been thinking about revival. I've been singing this song. I think I sang it in the car the other day when we were driving up here. Coming now to thee, O Christ my Lord, trusting only in thy precious word, let my humble prayer to thee be heard and send a great revival in my soul. Send the Holy Spirit now within, burning out the dross and guilt of sin. Let thy mighty works of grace begin. Oh, send a great revival in my soul. Send a great, oh, send a great revival, Lord, in me. Help me that I may rejoice in thee. Give me strength to win the victory and send a great revival in my soul. Help me go for thee, dear Lord, today to some lonely soul that's gone astray. Help me lead them in the homeward way. Oh, send a great revival in my soul. The chorus says, send a great revival in my soul. Let the Holy Spirit come and take control and send a great revival. That's a prayer. I've been praying. As I'm reading Habakkuk, convicted, I don't pray in song. On Sundays, the last couple of Sundays, it's hard to focus. It's hard because I'm not a song leader. And you guys see how often I mess up on the music in our songs. But lately, that's because I've been trying to lift my heart in prayer. I've been choosing songs that I can pray. Things I want God to do in my life. You want to grow your prayer life? Sing prayers. His prayer, the song was answered. I mentioned last week, Habakkuk 3.2. I've heard thy speech, was afraid, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Ezra 9.13. Go and turn there real quick. I mentioned this last week. I just want to make a brief mention again. His prayer in the song was, Revive thy work in wrath. Remember mercy. Ezra 9.13 says, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and has given us such deliverance as this. This is on the return back to the land of Israel. Habakkuk speaking before the carrying away into Babylon. Habakkuk's prayer was what? In your wrath, remember mercy. And what did Nehemiah say in his prayer? You've not punished us, or you've punished us less than our iniquities deserve. In other words, that's in Nehemiah and Ezra. They're right by each other. Ezra saying, God answered Habakkuk's prayer. He remembered mercy among his wrath. So that prayer was answered. So you say, well, if I pray in song, is it the same as praying? Will God answer it? Habakkuk tells us yes. He hears those prayers. He answers those prayers. Let's go on to the song. We're in verse 3 tonight. God came from Teman 
and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. When Habakkuk states God came from Teman, he's talking about God appearing out of the east. He's shining over his people like the rising sun. God is ending the darkness and bringing in a new day. Okay, so chapter 1 of Habakkuk, what do we see? A plea for justice, the abounding of iniquity, and then God laying out judgment. Chapter 2, what do we see? Habakkuk had a problem with the way God was going to judge. So God lays out and he explains his judgment. But his judgment is not just falling against Israel. His judgment is falling against the Gentile nations who are coming against Israel. Habakkuk is worried that God was going to wipe out his people, destroy his heritage. God assured him he wasn't going to do that. Then in chapter 3, he starts off in wrath, remember mercy, Lord. And the rest of chapter 3, the rest of the song, is God's triumph for his people. From the darkness that we see in chapter 1, God is bringing a new day, a new light to shine for his people. Like the rising of the sun in the east, he's going to shine for his people once again. Teman was a city in southern Edom. The rest are to the east of Israel. Mount Paran, a mountain opposite of Teman, was also in Israel. So picture a mountain, or east of Israel. So picture a mountain over here and, and, and over here to the east. And between those mountains, what does Habakkuk see? The rising sun, the glory of the sun. The Lord shining for his people like a gateway. He's bringing in victory for his people. After his judgment, Selah is a word in dispute. Some think it means musical direction. Others think it means to pause and reflect. I like to think it means both. It's a musical direction to stop and reflect on the greatness and goodness of God. After dark times are prophesied, there is hope coming for Israel. Coming through this gateway in the east like a sunrise, God comes bringing redemption for his people. What's that verse? I don't have the reference. Weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That's what we're seeing for Israel here. Weeping in the darkness of sin. Habakkuk weeping for his people. Weeping for injustice. Weeping for, 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 for what's happened to the, the, the heritage of God. And then God brings judgment so severe that Habakkuk says, wait a minute, you're going to destroy us. But then we see God coming in. He says, no, 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 I'm not destroying you. I'm reviving you. I'm answering your prayer. Light will shine where darkness once ruled. A new day was coming. Look at the rest of verse 3. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. We see here the kingly glory of the Lord coming down and filling the earth. The nation of Israel was to be judged, but not destroyed. Remember what Habakkuk was afraid of? God, you're going to destroy us. This nation's going to come in. They're, they're going to wipe us out. They're, looking, they're wiping out all the other nations. You're going to lose your heritage. They're not going to lose their heritage. They're going to expand their borders. Chapter, look at chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. By the way, when that verse was written, we can all agree it's a very dark time for Israel. So much sin that Habakkuk actually wondered, God, what are you doing? You're letting this happen. You're doing nothing. You're silent. 
from that time of darkness, a time we read in Isaiah that justice has fallen in the streets, equity cannot enter. God says, one day, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover. You know how impossible that seemed to have happened at that moment in time? The glory of the Lord didn't even flood Israel at the time. It was in darkness. It was in peril. It was in sin. God says, I'm not going to destroy your borders. I'm going to expand them. He wants the world. He wants the nations. So Psalm 2, ask of me, I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the animal parts of the earth for your possession. There was a new day coming, not just for Israel, but for all of God's elect people, Jew and Gentile. Verse 3b, his glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. That's hard for us to fathom today, isn't it? Look at our society. Can you fathom the day when Christ will reign over the nations? Where they'll obey him and worship him? It's hard if we just look around us, isn't it? We just, I mean, our, our, our state and other states just made it a constitutional right to murder your child. They're trying to rush through legislation now to legalize gay marriage in law. Right now it's just a Supreme Court ruling. They want to make it you know, actually in law. It's hard. You watch these clips from people like Tatsuo who are out preaching. Those are less than friendly crowds. It's hard to imagine. It was equally hard, though, for Habakkuk to imagine that. But here it is in this vision. Christ was bringing deliverance for his people. He would rule the nations. His glory would fill the earth, not just Israel, the earth. By the way, he wasn't wrong, was he? What started in a small nation in the Middle East, this last Sunday, our little church here, it's just a, a glimmer. But on every continent, in most language groups, most ethnicities, tribes, tongues, people, there are people worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. And that's not even that's not even the end product. That's not even the, the, the final glory of the Lord ruling over the nations. That's just what's going on right now. So while you look around and get discouraged by the politics and by the evil, and remember, there's a day coming when Christ will rule the nations. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't care how dark, don't get discouraged by the darkness. It lasts for a moment, but joy comes in the morning. Christ will win in the end. Turn off the news and open the Bible. There's glory in the Bible. All hope is not lost. God is not blind to the sins of our nation. Let me go on before I get too far into that. There's a striking similarity in this language to this in Mount Sinai, Deuteronomy 33, 1 and 2. Let's go ahead and look at that real quick. I'm going to go ahead and read the scriptures tonight, so I know Melissa usually has the microphone, but she's not here, so we're going to just kind of turn and, and look at these tonight. Deuteronomy 33, 
one and two. Keep your finger in habit. You're going to go back and forth a lot. So let me read again Habakkuk 3, 3. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Deuteronomy 33, 1 and 2. And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Mount Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran and he came with ten thousands of saints from his right hand with a fiery law for them. Very similar language to what we see in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, God also comes from the east with a shining light. He hints here, and what we see pictured in this chapter is a second exodus. I want you to understand, I want you to catch that. A second exodus. The exodus of the children of Israel was a picture, a type, a shadow. So many things in the Old Testament have New Testament fulfillments. We're going to see that here. He's hinting at a second exodus for God's people. There are great parallels to the Gospels and the book of Exodus, or the Exodus account. Let's look at a few. Jesus going down to Egypt. Hosea 11.1. 1. Let's look at that one. Hosea 11.1. 1. We're not going to turn to each one of these, but I want to turn to a few. Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. And of course, verse 2 goes on, as they called them, so they went. So we know that Hosea is talking about the nation of Israel. Turn now to Matthew chapter 2. So while Hosea was in one sense, talking about the nation of Israel, and in another sense, he was talking about Christ. Matthew 2, 14 and 15. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. So we see a parallel in Christ to the Israelites coming out of Egypt in their exile. So Hosea was referring back to Israel, but he was, he was prophesying forward of Christ at his birth when he would be taken down into Egypt. We see Jesus testing 40 days in the wilderness, one day for every year of Israel's disobedience. Israel, remember, they wandered 40 years in the wilderness, being tested there. Jesus was tested for 40 days. He was the obedient Israel, the true Israel. When tempted by Satan, Jesus quotes the Bible three times. Each of the three relate to the Exodus. Each of the three are from the book of Deuteronomy. Let's look at those. Deuteronomy 8.3. We won't read the account of Jesus' temptation, but you'll recognize the verses as we read them. Deuteronomy 83. 8.3. 8.3. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread, bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Deuteronomy 6.13. 6.13. A couple pages over. 
Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. This is the, the one where Satan told Jesus, fall down and worship me. He says, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God only and him only shalt thou serve. Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. So back to Habakkuk. These are three references that Jesus made during his temptation. Jesus chose 12 disciples, reminiscent of the 12 tribes of Israel. He fed the 5,000, reminiscent of the manna feeding the thousands of Israelites in the wilderness. The Sermon on the Mount reminds us of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. These are parallels to the Exodus. John came out of the wilderness and was baptizing in the Jordan. This reminds us of Israel crossing over the Jordan to enter the Promised Land, doesn't it? Because what happened? When they came to John, he was in the wilderness. It means they had to cross over Jordan, didn't they? And then when they came back through the Jordan, they were what? Being baptized. For what? The remission of sins. They were coming to declare that they were sinners, they were unclean, and the fruit of the repentance was the baptism. And so they had to cross back over Jordan. We see the parallel there as well. Then there's the reference of Jesus in Matthew 23, 37 and 38. Let's turn there briefly. Matthew 23. Thirty-seven and thirty-eight. As I stand here, I realize my children are terrible at whispering. I can hear everything they're saying. If you tell my kids to whisper, if they have a, if you have a secret for them, everyone's gonna know your secret. I'm just letting you guys know that. Matthew twenty-three, thirty-seven, thirty-eight. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, as even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. You say, how is that parallel to the Exodus? Let me tell you. Why was Israel wandering 40 years in the wilderness? Because they doubted the promises of God, right? They went to the land, they came back, and they said, Nope, too hard. Can't do it. They're too big. It's too massive. Let's just go back to Egypt and be slaves. Except for two, Joshua and Caleb, they're like, we got this. God's on our side. We're fine. They entered, but because of disobedience and unbelief of the people, what, what did God tell them? You will wander the wilderness until your carcasses fall, until you're dead. Your children will go in. Your children will receive the blessing. You will not. Right? What is Jesus saying in Matthew 23? He's speaking to the rulers of Israel, the leadership of Israel. And he says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers? I think I quoted that wrong. You know what I'm saying. But you would not. Therefore, your house is left to you desolate. What is he telling them? Your carcasses will fall. You will be destroyed. You will die. Your temple will be destroyed. But the children, they're going to be saved. They're going to be saved. Over the next 40 years, between Jesus' death and the destruction of Jerusalem, what do we see? The gospel going forth? Jewish believers founding the church? Then what were they told to do when Jerusalem was surrounded by armies? Run. Flee. Get out. 
It's exactly what they did. When Rome surrounded Jerusalem, if you read Josephus's Wars of the Jews, you'll find out Rome surrounded Jerusalem. Christians who knew the words of Christ knew what this meant, and then they retreated for a couple of days. And then they came back for the final siege of Jerusalem. But in those couple of days they were gone, Josephus records, all of the Christians fled the city. They were saved. They, were, they entered the promised land. They were redeemed. But those who were the unbelieving, those who paralleled the people, the adults of the wilderness at the time of the, of the Exodus, they were condemned to die where they were. They would never enter the promise. They would never see the They would never inherit Christ. We see these great parallels that Christ is the second exodus for his people. Rescuing us from sin. What he's saying is there's hope coming for Israel and that hope is a Messiah. The one who would have universal dominion, whose glory would fill the whole earth, whose kingdom would see no end. He would bear the judgment for their sin. That's the new day that was coming. God's like, I see the sin, I see the injustice, and I'm going to take it on myself. I'm going to redeem my people. There's a new day dawning. The glory of the Lord will rise like the rising sun because Christ will redeem his people. He's telling Habakkuk, all hope isn't lost. All hope isn't lost. Don't focus on what you see around you. Habakkuk is focusing now on the promises of God of a future for his people. Time is it? We're all right. Verse 4. And his brightness was as the light. We see again in Exodus Solution. This reference brings to mind the pillar of fire over Israel. Any Jew who heard, read this chapter, that's the first thing he's going to think of. The pillar of fire that guided them. The next part of the verse has a similar illusion. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was a, the hiding of his power. The horns here... And elsewhere in the Bible, typically speak of military strength, but the Hebrew meaning is beams of light. He had beams of light coming out of his hand. Many of the Jewish commentators relate this to the light that shone from the face of Moses when he met God face to face. The same term for light and horn are used there. The rest of the verse says, and there was the hiding of his power. This also, we see the allusion to having to hide his full glory from Moses when Moses went in to see him. We see the glory and majesty of God pictured here. Verse 5, before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. We have more allusions to the first exodus. The plagues of Egypt are in mind here. Before him went the pestilence. The burning coals are a reminder of the hail mixed with fire that fell upon Egypt. He's recounting what he's doing is he's recounting God's victory over the gods of Egypt, over the Egyptians. God's reminding him in this prayer, in this song, that though those first two chapters were dark, though judgment was declared, though Habakkuk was starting to lose hope, he's, no, glory is coming. A new day is coming. My glory will fill Israel and the world. And he's recounting to him all that God did to lead his people out of Egypt. And he's going to do the same thing, a second exodus, to lead his people out of sin entirely. Egypt's a picture of sin in the Bible, isn't it? 
We see that over and over again. Jesus is a picture of sin as opposed to the promised land. I know a lot of our songs and our hymns tend to make the you know the, the promised land heaven and this is where in the, but that's really the Bible doesn't make it that that way. The promised land is the promises of Christ, the kingdom of God. That city that Abraham is seeking the whole time. Egypt is sin. And he's promising that he's bringing his people once and for all out of Egypt and into the promised land, the final promised land. Yes, heaven's part of that. I understand that. But we're part of the kingdom of God right now. We're inheritors of the promise right now. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. The clear reference here is to the driving out of the nations in Canaan. He went before them and drove out the nations. In terms of a second exodus or deliverance of God's people, we see references to standing and measuring a lot in Revelation, don't we? First thing I thought of when I read that was Revelation. Angel standing with one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. We see them measuring the temple and the city and the worshipers of God. We see all this going on in God's victory. That's all Revelation is, by the way. It's just God's victory parade over, over his enemies. We see the conquering of the nations also as a picture of Christ over the heathen nations. Verse 6b, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. This language about the mountains being scattered historically, I think, references the shaking of the mountain at Mount Sinai. But for the future exodus, it parallels it as well. Turn to Matthew 21, 21. I'm going to turn to a couple places as we conclude this here. Matthew 21, there's, there's references, a lot of references to mountains being moved. Matthew 21, 21. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea, it shall be done. Go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We're seeing the moving of mountains as a, a picture of God's victory. A picture, a picture of God's... It rhymed in my head. That's why I said it. A picture of God's victory. Revelation 6, 13 and 14. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. We see the judgment of God, don't we? The removing of the mountains. In Matthew 21, it's the same picture. Jesus comes out and curses the fig tree. He wants fruit. It's not time for fruit. There's no fruit on the tree. What does he do? He curses the fig tree. No fruit ever grow on you again. He tells his disciples, you have faith like a mustard seed. You'll not only do what I did to the fig tree, but you'll command the mountain to be moved. Judgment. Judgment on his enemies. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll finish up there. Hebrews 12.
look at verses 18 to 24. Yeah, okay. For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor into blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated, that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men, made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Verse 26. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. When God led them out in that first exodus, he led them to Mount Sinai, the shakable mountain, the mountain that, that, that they said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But he says in the second exodus, his people, were, we're not going to that mountain. We're going to an unshakable mountain, an immovable kingdom that will never be destroyed, a heavenly Jerusalem, better than the earthly Jerusalem, with a king better than the kings of Israel, a priest better than the priests of Israel. It's a glorious day. In chapter 3, in these verses, I see the second exodus, the promise that while it's dark, while there's sin, there's a new day coming for God's people. Final deliverance from sin. Final glory. Greater than the glory that they had. in the. See, Habakkuk, he's, he's mourning the former days. And God's saying something better is coming than the former days. Something greater, something grander, something that will fill the earth. A new kingdom. A new kingdom that will fill the earth. A kingdom that cannot be moved, cannot be shaken, wherein dwells eternal righteousness. No more, let's be honest, we talk about the church, right? We complain about the sin in the church and the, the watering down of the gospel. Listen, that's not the kingdom of God. That's the, that's the visible professing church. A lot of them are lost. But within the true kingdom of God, there's no darkness. Truth never falls. Equity never fails. There's justice and righteousness among God's true people, those who are truly saved. That's what he's promising here. Final deliverance. I'm not destroying my people, Habakkuk. I'm not. I'm expanding them. They're going to fill the earth. They're going to have perfect righteousness, a mountain that can't be moved, a kingdom that can't be shaken. No more sin. The first part of the song was a plea for revival. The second portion is a vision of the answer to the prayer in the first two verses. God will revive and rescue his people. A second exodus is coming. A second exodus is coming. And they will be led into the promised land which is the kingdom of God, where righteousness and truth and justice reign eternally. 
So he's telling Habakkuk, don't worry. I hear your prayer. He's granting his prayer, but more than the prophet ever could have imagined. When Habakkuk said, in wrath, remember mercy, he had no idea what God was going to do. He couldn't have fathomed it. Church, we can't fathom what God's going to do. Get your eyes off the darkness. Yes, we cry for justice. Yes, we seek to, to establish righteousness and judgment. We preach holiness. We preach the gospel, yes. But God's going to do so much in this world. Not in my lifetime. I understand that. But his glory is going to shine in this world. The nations will come and worship Christ. He gets final victory. So while it's dark, keep your eyes on that sunrise that's coming. The glory of the Lord will fill the earth. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the end, he wins. His enemies can't touch him. His kingdom cannot be moved. The mountain cannot be shaken. It is eternal. And in the last day, I think both saint and sinner will stand convinced that he's perfectly just, perfectly righteous. I don't, I'm not saying they're going to hell willingly, right? Revelation chapter 20, they're cast into the lake of fire. The word cast in the Greek is literally hurled, hurled in the lake of fire. You know why? Because they don't jump in. They don't go willingly. But I'm convinced that at the judgment, every sinner condemned to eternal destruction will look at Christ and say, that's just and right. I think every Christian will look at Christ's judgment and go, that's just and right. Folks, we inherit a better eternal kingdom. Don't get discouraged. There's glory coming. It's not visible to us. I understand that. That's why we hold on to this. That's why we hold on to the promises here. We don't judge Christ or Christianity or our faith by our surroundings. If we did, it'd be a mess, wouldn't it? We stand on these promises. Don't get discouraged. He wins and we win because we're joint heirs with him. Amen? There is some hope coming. We've been focusing a lot in Habakkuk on, uh, it's been very dark, hasn't it? <laughs> kind of grim, kind of like, oh man, so much wickedness. And then bring, judge, bring judgment, bless you. And then, oh, the judgment's too harsh. What are we, we going to do? And then we, last chapter, we're looking at all these woes, woe and this, woe to this, woe to all these judgments. But now we're seeing there's hope. There's hope. By the way, when, when you give the gospel to somebody, tell them they're going to hell. Tell them they're sinners. But make sure you give them the hope, too. Right? Give them the hope, too, that Christ died for sinners. If you're a sinner, you're who Christ died for. Come on. Come take of it. I was really encouraged this week with all the election nonsense and all the political pundits and this and that. And the sky is falling. The sky is falling. I'm reading Habakkuk chapter 3. I'm like, man, there's glory coming. We're okay. God is in control, and he's promised, hey, you and I were saved. We've crossed over the, the, new, the second exodus, haven't we? We're in the promised land. We're in the kingdom of God. He's taken our sins. We have eternal righteousness. We have what the Jews of old could never have dreamed of. There's glory coming. There's glory coming. When Christ comes back or when we die, there's glory coming. So don't lose heart.
Any questions, comments, thoughts, angry emojis you want to send me? I'm fine with all of them. <laughs>